Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Lonesomeness. It's a feeling or a state that means more than just being lonely. It's, at least to some degree, about being unrelatable. About holding concerns and worries and hopes and dreams that, as far as you can tell, nobody else does. It's about seeing those around you who are so easily satiated by things like money, a house, a family, a bowl of popcorn and a football game, as simpletons. Many of us are deep in debt. So every thought of our day is tainted by that concern. Every good feeling popped before it can swell. And the debt is a shameful thing, so we can't talk about it much. We'll claim to be depressed, and we are, but it's not just a cruel joke of nature, a chemical imbalance that has us down. It's the shackles of our debt. And the worst of it is that the only time we feel up is when we're digging deeper into it, embracing it, laughing at it, until morning when we wake with it wrapped around our soul, then spend the day imagining ways to not feel its death grip cinch tighter. It's lonely to be in debt. Our debts are more than just financial. They are our failure to improve on our shortcomings, learn from our sins of the past, anything that we hang on to, procrastinate about moving on from, and making as right as we can. I'm reminded of the advice Seinfeld gave Kramer, not on the show, but later, after Kramer went off script. Jerry advised Cosmo that if he was truly remorseful, then all that there was left to do was put down the bag and walk away. But that's the problem. Most of us aren't carrying baggage that we have the guts to unpack and put away properly. We believe we've been saddled with the guilt, unjustifiably punished with our cumbersome load. Guilt is nature's way of telling us we need to make adjustments. And if you're not willing to humble up, to take a look at the big picture and say, hey, maybe I'm an asshole. Maybe everything I'm holding on to that keeps this bag of guilt strapped to my back is the problem. Maybe if I look in this bag, really look, that I won't need to start strapping it back on with my little petty rebuttals. You have to dig deeper. Feeling disgusted by people who have it together is likely the result of being disgusted with yourself. To have a home, a family, a handle on your finances... A smile over your popcorn while you watch your favorite TV show takes discipline. That smile is earned. That simple peace over simple things is earned. And the friends who tell you just to stop worrying about it, to get over whatever it is, they're simply tired of listening to the broken record. They just want you to move on so they don't have to hear about it anymore. I'm a fan of Seinfeld, but it's pretty clear that he's a bit of a sociopath and narcissist I find him refreshing, his honesty. But I think the real advice is to accept that guilt, 
welcome it as your cross to bear. You probably deserve to feel it. So just accept that it's supposed to be there. Understand why it's there. Accept why it's there. This won't make it disappear, but it will lighten its burden. Our subject for today's episode was a master of making guilt disappear, because he held no ability to feel it in the first place. There are many of us who are missing this piece, but few who abuse its absence by treating people like objects, things to be used, abused, and in rare cases, dismantled, as if what remains once they're through is their possession to do with as they please, something to be transformed into a hideous piece of art and left to be found by appraisers who will never have the capacity to see it as such. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 26, a case of a disturbed child who learned to embrace what he was, hide it, and become a very well-adjusted serial killer. Charlie Brandt. February 23rd, 1957, Connecticut. Carl E. Brandt, later known as Charlie, is born. He is the second child of German immigrants Herbert and Ilza Brandt, and the only son. The family will eventually grow to four children, thanks to two little girls who arrive much later than Charlie and his older sister Angela, around a decade later in fact, so it's basically a fresh batch of kids coming through the Brandt home. And it is around this time, in 1968, that the family relocates to Fort Wayne, Indiana for Herbert's advancement at work and a larger home for the Brant brood. Things are going so well for the Brants that they purchase a vacation home in Florida as well. Charlie is 11 years old and does not seamlessly adjust to this change of scenery. He is a chubby kid and an easy target. He will later be described as being at this time lost and lonely. Lucky for him, his father was hands-on, and although maybe not the most talkative man, he was present and sensed his son's difficulty fitting into his new environment. The two would head out on a hunting trip some weekends, bringing along with them Charlie's best friend, the family Beagle. One such trip occurred in late December of 1970. The family are just wrapping up the Christmas holidays, which they spent in Florida at their vacation house. Charlie, now 13, loves Florida and wishes they could stay. But soon it's back to school and Fort Wayne and the gloomy weather and the dumb, mean kids. Oh, and Mum's pregnant again, so there'll be another baby for some reason soon enough. The hunting trip is meant to be a memorable one for father and son. Charlie is about to turn 14, and the years seem to be flying by. The versions of her children are fleeting. Year to year, it's as if a new child is living with you. As they advance through childhood and puberty, it's a sad thing. And I'm sure Charlie's father was aware of this on some level, of the time passing too quick, when he brought along his only son to hunt this day. It would, in fact, be an unforgettable excursion, but for all the wrong reasons. When Charlie's dog fails to come back out of the woods at some point during the hunt, Herbert Brandt decides to fire into the brush to scare the dog out, or so the story goes. The dog is killed as a result. Now, As we get to know Charlie a little better here, or Carl as he's still known at this time, you'll understand my suspicion. Charlie's father would forever protect and stand by his only son, no matter what. What in capitals, 
so I believe there's a chance Charlie shot his own dog just on impulse after he'd become bored of the hunt, and his eyes had grown dark considering the approaching end of their vacation. His father would later share of this incident, that it disturbed him how little his son had reacted to the tragedy. One minute they'd been inseparable pals, a boy and his dog. The next, they were dragging the dead beagle out of the bush to bury it, and young Charlie behaved as if this were business as usual. The death of his pet hadn't seemed to bother him in the least. It was very odd, almost as if not only had Charlie Brandt, like all children, been morphing from version to version, year after year, but that at some point, maybe even from birth, he'd failed to develop a sense of value or at least a healthy respect for life. The exposure of this trait or lack thereof made Charlie a stranger, even to maybe the closest person to him in his life. As a father, the worst feeling is seeing an issue with your child and being helpless to remedy it. Even worse is looking to nurture a stunted piece of them and finding that that piece had never begun growing in the first place. Avoid. The evening of January the 3rd, 1971. The Brants have returned home to Fort Wayne and are settling back into their routines. It's around 9.30 p.m., and the youngest girls are in bed sleeping. Angela, the eldest child, at 15 years old, is up reading by lamplight. Mom, who is eight months pregnant and tired from being on her feet tending to her youngest little girls all day, is enjoying a bath in a Time magazine while Dad shaves over the sink. Charlie is walking up the stairs with his father's Luger in hand. His eyes have gone black, and it's as if he's being remotely controlled by some dark entity when he interrupts the relaxing scene in the bathroom and begins firing on his parents. Angela's focus has snapped away from her novel when the sound of what she initially believes to be firecrackers starts ringing through the house. She hears her father yell out for Charlie to stop. Then her mother screams for Angela to call the police. Then silence. Then footsteps, approaching from the hall. Then her door is opening and her brother is there, with something in his hand. But she doesn't realize what it is right away. She's too distracted by the look on her brother's face. This is most certainly the boy she's known for 14 years, standing here in front of her. But the look on his face, the emptiness in his eyes, is completely foreign. The thing that looks like her brother then raises what she now sees to be her father's gun and pulls the trigger. The Brant home is transformed into the set of a horror film. Back in the washroom, Charlie's father lays on the floor, critically injured, but alive. He manages to get a look into the tub to check on his wife and unborn baby. They are both clearly dead. His wife is full of holes, and the tub has become a blood basin. Luckily for his daughters, their mother and he had taken maybe three or four of the bullets that had been meant for the girls. Charlie appears to come back to his senses a little when he pulls the trigger on his sister and hears the unsatisfying click. He's out of ammo. He strides towards his sister and attacks her in bed, and the two fight for a minute before Angela decides to try a different approach, one that just might save her life, and that of her little sisters who are still asleep, and for the moment, blissfully unaware that their mummy is dead. Angela tells Charlie that they have to go, that they will take the car and flee to a hippie commune with their little sisters. Charlie, upon hearing this plan that denotes his big sister is on his side, completely comes back to himself. The blank look is gone. He is scared now. He asks his sister to never leave him. She comforts him and they begin walking downstairs. Angela wants to get out of the house and run for help. Outside, the wind rattles the windows and an ice storm is raging.
but anything is better than being in here right now, with this thing that's killed her parents. She asks Charlie to get some blankets while she starts the car, and as he turns to head back upstairs to do so, she unlocks the front door. You're not going to leave me, are you? Charlie asks. He looks sad now. Spent. Angela assures him that everything will be fine, then opens the door and runs barefoot out into the storm, exhilarated by the cold and the reprieve from death she's earned, yet terrified for her family. Mom and Dad are surely dead, but what if her brother gets mad when he finds out she's running for help? What if he finds another gun and decides to finish what he'd started? Oh God, she thinks. The girls are still in there. Angela sprints to her friend's house next door and begins banging on everything, including the windows. There's no immediate response, so she flees across the ice-stippled grass to the next house. When there's no answer there, she heads to the next. She can sense her brother is now out here with her, and she's in a blind panic of sheer terror. Charlie is in fact out of the house now, and following the icy footprints of his sister to the first house she'd tried. He mournfully cries out into the cold, gusty night for Angela reminding her that she promised she'd never leave him. Then he's up on the porch of his neighbor and calmly knocking on the door. Angela's friend, who had thought she'd heard some banging earlier, answers the polite knocking and unlocks the door. Her parents soon approach from behind their daughter to see who's calling at this hour. Charlie is standing there, his eyes no longer dark but bright and twinkling as much as the pavement beneath the streetlight behind him, looking like a boy who just lost everything, including his mind. As Angela bursts in on a family playing cards down the street, the eldest Brant children in near unison inform their neighbors that their parents are dead and help is needed. Emergency crews arrive and discover that Herbert Brant is still alive. They wake the girls and they're wrapped up against the cold, then united with their older sister. Charlie is driven away in a cruiser while his father is rushed to hospital. His pregnant mother will soon be removed from the house and taken to the morgue along with her unborn baby. This is obviously a complete travesty, yet news of the shocking crime barely makes the papers. Nobody wants to hear about this shit. It's a new year, after all. Charlie is allowed to attend his mother's funeral. He is there with his grieving family when she's buried. He looks on blankly through the ceremony, shifting occasionally and causing his shackles to jingle. Everyone, including the officers who surround him, are miserable. Everybody except Herbert Brandt, who, from his wheelchair, catches the eye of his son and gives him a forgiving smile. The courts are lenient. Charlie's father supports him all the way, saying that his mother had been nagging him too much, leading up to the incident. Charlie is sent to Central State Hospital in Indiana, where he receives therapy, though never shows any true remorse for what he's done. The doctor surmised that the young man had been acting on a compulsion, and whatever had caused him to snap, was now no longer a part of the boy. They did not believe that Charlie was mentally ill. They did not believe that he had planned to kill his family, though it was later found that Charlie had had the gun hidden under his books as he completed his homework that evening after dinner. On June the 16th of 1972, Charlie Brandt, who at this time is still known as Carl to the system, is discharged, and doctors assure his family that he is no longer a threat to them or anyone else. He is not mentally ill. He is not a psychopath. He just acted on a compulsion and fucking snapped for some reason. I don't know, but he's fine. Have a good one. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my 
little family, we are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. 1973. Charlie, who is now 15, and his older sister Angela, now 17, are attending the same high school in Ormond Beach, Florida, where the family has moved to get away from it all. Angela begins dating her classmate and future husband Jim Graves. Charlie latches on to Jim, who is helpless to be nice to the strange teen as he's dating his sister, and as time goes on, the two become friends. Charlie would say best friends. Jim is cool and a musician. Charlie is odd and desperate to hide it. He attaches himself to Jim and learns how to behave somewhat from the older teen, learns to be more laid back, less assuming. When Charlie turns 16, his father remarries and soon decides to move back to Indiana for work with his new wife and two young daughters. They, unlike Charlie and Angela, have not grown roots in Florida, so Herbert has no issue with relocating them. But since his oldest children appear to be doing so well, he arranges for their grandparents to come from Germany to stay at the holiday home with the kids until they can fly the coop. Angela soon moves out and marries Jim. She's terrified that Charlie will see this as a betrayal that it will trigger whatever was in him that fateful night in 1971, when she'd promised to never leave him. Angela lets her new husband Jim know about what Charlie had done. At first he doesn't believe her, but it's not long before he observes his father-in-law mowing the lawn with his shirt off and sees the scars from the bullets. Jim is a very laid-back guy and soon casually brings up what they all take to calling the incident, or it, with Charlie, who seems relieved to have someone to talk to about what happened though he has trouble articulating just what did happen, and the two young men become truly close friends. They remain close, even after Angela leaves Jim in 1975, when the two enter their 20s. She is not ready for a long-term commitment, she's realized. Jim is devastated, and turns to Charlie, who suggests they go out fishing and have some beers. Charlie, who is now 18, provides a shoulder for Jim to cry on. Jim lets Charlie know that he's a little uncomfortable spilling his guts about his failed relationship with Angela to her brother, but Charlie assures him it's okay. As night falls and the two young men begin wading through beer cans on the bottom of the boat to clap each other on the shoulder and confirm just how good of friends they've become, Charlie looks at Jim seriously and imparts his ultimate advice. Quote, if you really want to get back at her, 
The best revenge is when you cut someone's heart out and eat it. Jim chalks this up as drunken shit talk, but he's forever haunted by the look in Charlie's eyes. For a moment there, the weird kid who he now saw as a brother had become a man, a serious man who looked more than capable of practicing the horrible thing he just preached. The feeling passes, however, when Charlie's fishing rod dips and the storm clouds disperse from his stare. They're back to drinking and fishing and fishing and drinking, though a moment later Jim is uneasy again as he watches Charlie intensely fillet his catch while it still flops around in his grip, clearly alive and maybe screaming on some frequency only his strange friend is tuned to. Charlie and Jim soon become so close that Charlie moves in with Jim and his mother. The two friends begin attending college in Daytona Beach, where Jim's mom lives. Her son had told her the truth about Charlie's past, stressing the fact that doctors had been certain upon his release that he was no longer dangerous. Jim's mother was a forgiving Christian-type lady, and the poor boy had no mother of his own. His fault, of course, but still, she welcomed Charlie into her home like a son. There were no issues for about a year as the boys immersed themselves in their studies. Jim was on his way to becoming a professional jazz guitarist, and Charlie doggedly pursued a degree in electronics. In his spare time, the friends would fish and drink, but Charlie found himself completely alone on most of these frequent trips to the lake. He loved to fish, loved his alone time, but at the age of 20, he was finding that he loved something else even more than his reclusive hobby. He loved the dark fantasies that were beginning to swim through his mind. Fantasies that had been trapped in the muck of his psyche for quite some time now. Like the bottom feeders, he rarely let his bait sink to tempt while out on the water. He lets it sink now, and is surprised by the ferocity of the bite that follows. There's a big one down there. A real monster. Something so huge and nasty and ancient that as he brings it to the surface for inspection, he immediately understands that it exists only for his knowledge. For no one else would ever understand or believe its existence if he tried to tell of it. September 20th, 1978. A 13-year-old girl, Carol Ann Sullivan, goes missing on her way to the bus stop in Austin, Florida. Her mother, to this point, had always walked her to the pickup point, but on that morning, Carol Ann insisted she was old enough to walk by herself. It's quite likely that an odd young fisherman named Charlie Brandt was the last to ever see her alive. After having dragged her into the brush by a lake like some soulless villain from a slasher flick, it is just this kind of story that has me lurking around corners some mornings when my son walks to school. In my mind, every bush he passes has the potential to begin wiggling, then birth a wild-eyed mental patient who drags him away into the forever dark of some shadowy place. Sometimes when I'm out there on these paranoid missions, the experience becomes surreal. I begin to wonder if I'm the mental patient, lost in some lucid dream in the psych ward they put me in. After that day, I let him walk alone, and what happened to Carol Ann happened to him forever lost in my mind trying to make things right, trying to will myself back in time to intervene. Miss Graves is happy to have both Jim and Charlie at her table for dinner. The two have been so busy with school and then with friends and fishing in the evenings that she barely knows the young men that she shares a home with anymore. Over dinner, a local case that had been in the news comes up. The decapitated head of a 13-year-old girl who had been missing for about a month had been discovered by a fisherman, and the way in which it was discovered has Miss Graves and local residents horrified. Who would do such a thing to a little girl? You boys easily could have been the ones to find her. Imagine that. It's just inconceivable that someone could do such a... 
Charlie stuns his table guests by breaking down in helpless wild laughter at this point. It's the kind of laughter that can't be helped. He's got tears streaming down his face, and when he looks to Jim and his mother, their expressions bring on a fresh wave of chuckles. They've never seen Charlie laugh like this before. It's pure lunacy, really, considering the subject matter that brought it on. He is asked to leave soon after this incident. Jim's mother no longer feels safe with Charlie in the home, and at the age of 23, Charlie finds himself on his own again. He and Jim remain close, but Charlie doesn't seem to need people around him as much as he used to. He spends much of his time fishing, often at the lake in the area where the little girl's head was found in a... where a little girl's head was found in a rusted paint can. 1980. Charlie, at the age of 23, graduates with a degree. Right away, he secures a job with Raytheon. Yes, if this were a movie script, the director would ask the writer to use a bit more subtlety in foreshadowing Brant's evil. Raytheon specializes in creating instruments of destruction and basically serves as a black ops contractor for the U.S. As far as corporations go, this is one of the evilest corporations possible, and Charlie was overjoyed to be a part of the team. He was stationed in the Bahamas as part of an anti-drug running operation. His mission was to be an office soldier in the war on drugs, specifically those being smuggled into the U.S. from South and Central America. For his part, Charlie operated a drug intervention blimp affectionately called Fat Albert between the Florida Keys and the Bahamas. In reality, Charlie and like-minded filthy scoundrels employed by Raytheon used their intel to poach the drugs for themselves, sold them, made lots of money, did a ton of coke, and, in Charlie's case, probably murdered a whole lot of poor Caribbean women on the side. There was a shantytown not far from Brant's base, where the soldiers, by which I mean mercenaries since Raytheon's not the army, went to look for sex. The area was known as Brown Town. Charlie went there often, although there is no exact case we know that relates to him. His best friend, Jim Graves, believes, and this seems wholly plausible, that Charlie murdered more than a few women there. If you consider that Brant was most likely a blossoming serial killer, partaking in unlimited amounts of cocaine in an area of the world where he was basically untouchable, this is even more plausible. What Charlie told his friends about the job was that he fished and smoked weed all day and made a ton of off-the-books money. When he unceremoniously quit the dream job, he told his best friend Jim that he had ended up fishing a duffel bag full of pure, uncut cocaine out of the warm Caribbean waters one afternoon. He sold it, using the connections of a fellow employee, to a buyer who paid 500 grand. Charlie soon bought a house, which he paid for with $250,000 cash. He also bought an 18-foot boat, which he claimed was for fishing, and I'm sure it was. But it is suspected that Charlie had swapped teams and was using the boat to run drugs in and out of the U.S. He was now 28 years old and retired. 1985. Now that Charlie had returned to civilian life, he was ready to date more seriously. Possibly because he now no longer had Browntown to use as his personal hunting ground under the cover of institutional disinterest. He was building a mask of normalcy for himself, and part of this facade had to include a nice house and a nice girl. Charlie asked Jim for help regarding this, and Jim soon asked the girl he was dating at the time, Nancy, if she had a friend to introduce to Charlie. It's not long before Charlie is introduced to Terry Helfrich on a double date with Jim and Nancy. The two hit it off, and Charlie is immediately convinced that this is the woman for him. They move in together after only a few weeks. August 29th, 
1986. Charlie and Terry are married. They invite no family members. Jim and Nancy were best man and bridesmaid. Nancy's impression of Charlie was that he was laid back and relaxed, and Terry, who was more of a free spirit, an extrovert, matched up with him perfectly, a true case of opposites attracting. It's suspected that Charlie wanted to keep their families from mingling to keep his past a secret. When Jim heard that Charlie was going to propose to Terry, he asked if he had told her about his mother. Charlie said he had not, and was not planning on telling her either. Jim then gave him an ultimatum. Tell Terry or I will. Charlie's older sister Angela also reported Charlie sought her advice as to whether he should tell Terry. You know about it. She said he should, and it's thought that Charlie took her advice. December, 1988. After the wedding, Terry and Charlie moved to a brand new house on Big Pine Key. The Florida Keys have a special social atmosphere. It is a place known to embrace eccentric types where people from different social classes mingle without a second thought. It's not uncommon to see a beach bum sharing a laugh and a drink with a lawyer by the bar, for example. Charlie loved this place as he seemed to fit in. Being odd on the keys is the norm, a big reason why he was attracted to Florida. Terry worked at the Palm Island Resort while Charlie fished and drank the days away. He preferred to have Terry at his side in social situations. One of the likely reasons for this was that Charlie used Terry as a social shield. He rarely got too deep with anyone, though was considered to be a friendly guy. In hindsight, people remembered that they spoke to him very little at social gatherings. He was always running to get Terry a drink or a blanket. The two were, by all appearances, happily married. They often spoke of how they enjoyed making lunches for one another, because food just tastes better when it's made by someone who loves you. A sweet thing to say, almost too sweet, makes your teeth hurt a little. December 17, 1968. Lisa Sanders, 21, had missed out on high school because of a battle with leukemia. She had lived a very sheltered life and wanted friends badly. On this night in late December, she decided she'd had enough. She was going to get out there and live a little. She attended a big Christmas party on No Name Key, which for her was a big deal. But the people who invited her were dummies, not as mature as Lisa, that's for sure and there was some sort of nonsense drama Lisa didn't want to be a part of. So disappointed, but maybe relieved to have scratched that itch, she left the party and walked out into the night alone. Her mutilated body was discovered the next day, half a mile away, in a field, hidden behind the skeleton of a Volkswagen bug. Her head had been smashed in with a heavy object. Her eyes had been gouged out with a knife. Most of her heart, as well as other organs, were missing. Investigators were unsure at the time whether this was done by wildlife because her body had been exposed to the elements. The case quickly goes cold. At the Brant home, not everything is as perfect as it seemed beyond it. Charlie's an odd duck. That's a big reason why Terry loves him so much, but some things are getting difficult to ignore. He disappears from bed some nights, seeming to come to life from sleep as if possessed, then leaves without giving any explanation. Terry notes these incidents in her journal, at times summing up the day by writing that it had been a, quote, strange night, or Charlie was weird today, or Charlie was out until dawn. Charlie explains to his wife that he just gets the itch to go fishing sometimes, at any given hour, and when he returns with blood on him some mornings, he has the built-in excuse of it being fish guts. The couple are, for the most part, very happy, 
and it's assumed Terry let a lot of Charlie's peculiar behavior slide to keep things peaceful. She even allowed for a disturbing picture to be hung from the back of their bedroom door. It was a full-size anatomical illustration of the female body. It showed the muscles on one side of the body and the skeleton underlying them on the other. The oddest thing was that the skull had hair on it, dirty blonde hair tied up in a sexy bun, something Charlie likely focused on while the pair made love. This has not been mentioned by anyone else that I know of, but if you look at this picture like I do, you can see a face within it. The eyes made up of the pelvis and hip, the bridge of the nose beginning with the skeletal hands. Charlie had his facade all set, meticulously structured around him. But if one were to look close enough, they'd see his true face, just like in this strange poster, peeking through. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Dark Topic.